Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is looking at possibly delaying the second doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to four months after the first shot. Is that a good idea? Several provinces also began expanding their vaccination programs to members of the general population as new recommendations say the AstraZeneca vaccine should not be used on seniors. We'll get an update on that. And when the pandemic goes away, what are the chances that we'll all go back to the way that things were? Steve Jordan's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, thinks it's very likely he'll explain. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's been updates recently about uh, when we should be vaccinated, how we should be vaccinated, which uh, of these uh, many vaccines are going to be available to us, and, and also some concerns, of course, about, uh, well, the possibilities and the the. the predictions, I guess, is maybe the best word to use that governments and, and some medical experts are giving us about what's happening here. Is there going to be a third wave? Is it inevitable? That's a word I, I heard uh, from a number of different doctors a couple of months ago when they talked about a third wave. And are we relying too much on these these models that are being presented? So much going on here. Uh, but I want, first of all, start, start with the, the, the vaccines and when they're going to be done. Uh, British Columbia, as you know, is now allowing four months between the first and second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Provincial Health Minister Dr. Bonnie Henry says the first dose is 90% effective after about three weeks, and extending that interval between shots makes a lot of sense. In combination with the new uh, vaccines that we have available, this gives us a very important and very real benefit to everybody here in D.C. That means we can move everybody up the list and more people will be protected sooner. Uh, that's a bit of a change, obviously, in strategy, and we're going to try to get into that. And I also want to talk about these modeling things that are being used, too, because an awful lot of government policy is based on those. Joining us to talk about all of this is Dr. Prabhat Jha, who is an epidemiologist and professor of global health at the University of Toronto, also a founding director in the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for the time, and so glad you could join us here today. Happy to join, Bill. Let me ask you. Let's let's get into the vaccine and the and the, the the protocol for that. First of all, I mean, you know, when we were told that the vaccines were available and all these clinical trials had been done, uh, we were told, you know, you get your first shot and and then three to four weeks later you get your second one. Now they're talking three to four months. What's what's changed? I think that what's changed is the amount of real world evidence that even a single dose of all of the vaccines provide substantial protection. And the other thing that's changed, quite frankly, is we don't have enough vaccine supply yet in Canada. And if our goal is to protect our senior citizens and to protect a healthcare system, then what my colleague Dr. Bonnie Henry is suggesting is not an unreasonable one. Try to get one needle into everyone, particularly the elderly, as quickly as possible while the vaccine supply improves so you can get two doses ideally into everyone but one dose works pretty well from what we've had as new evidence since the trials were done i I just want to back up a little bit about the trials first of all doctor why did they make the determination or or was there a mathematical determination that that second dose in, in the initial stages should be three to four weeks later the trials uh you see this is a brand new vaccine so the first time When the testing was done, there was just scientific guesswork saying, well, maybe we should wait three weeks between two doses. And um, the trials, the actual testing of these, was done with mostly that kind of protocol. 
Now, what's happened is uh, in more real-life settings because of delay in getting the second uh, dose, just vaccine supply is short worldwide, Mm -hmm. there have been now careful studies that say, well, what happens if you follow up people with a single dose of a vaccine? So, for example, a study in Scotland with over 5 million people found that um, even a single dose of the vaccine Uh, either the Pfizer or the AstraZeneca uh, yielded quite substantial benefits um, up to 42 days later. So based upon that and other evidence, and there's also lab studies now that say how long does your, uh, um, with a single dose, how long does an immune response uh, last? Uh, So you put all that together and Ideally, we'd like to have enough vaccines to get everyone immunized, particularly the elderly. But when there's constraints, I think it's a reasonable strategy to make sure a single dose gets into the elderly in particular. We're still learning about this, though, aren't we, Doctor? About, as you say, how long it's actually going to last. I mean, we know more now than, than we did two months ago. We do. And the the good news is that if you look at the studies that uh, uh, have followed people who've been naturally infected. Now, there's pretty good evidence that up to uh, about eight months later, you still have an antibody response and you have an immune response that protects you mostly, but not completely, against new infections. And certainly it protects against uh, serious hospitalization or death. So, uh, and the vaccines now, because they're newer, we'll get evidence as uh, we follow up people longer. But all of that is really encouraging. Um, A few months ago, you've never thought that we've got something that could help put an end to this pandemic. And now over 200 million people worldwide have gotten the vaccine, which is actually extraordinarily, uh, is extraordinary success story in science. Uh, We're all waiting for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I, I don't, I'm hoping, Doctor, that our expectations are not being set too high uh, for this because it's single dose. It doesn't need as much refrigeration. Uh, it seems as if it's it's the natural transition of what everybody would want in a vaccine, which is not to obviously diminish the, the work we're getting from Pfizer and the others as well. But uh, even with that one dose, though, we still don't know whether that's going to get us good for a year, two years, three years, whatever, do we? The signs are promising, but yes, you need to keep studying uh, studying the vaccine. I think the key thing is you want multiple vaccines available. So the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are both very good. The AstraZeneca vaccine is actually quite good, and uh, I'm not quite sure why the National Advisory Council on Immunization said, oh, we're only going to recommend them to people below 65. In England and Europe, they're using them of 65. That same study I mentioned out of Scotland, which followed 5 million people, said in older people, the AstraZeneca vaccine was as good as the Pfizer. You know, in fact, slightly better, but I mean, more or less at least as good. So uh, I'm not quite sure why they use that, uh, uh, the logic, because uh, I, I have a sense of what happened is, you know, the early trials, when everyone's trying to figure out what the hell do we do with this uh, infection, We weren't sure, or AstraZeneca and the Oxford group wasn't sure whether elderly people would have uh, like bad reactions to the drugs or to the vaccines. So they tested just in younger people below age 65, and they showed pretty convincing uh, evidence. And then later, they were able to, uh, other trials 
looked at older people and showed also strong evidence. But when you put all of the evidence together, I think any vaccines, any of the ones that are uh, out there are, I should say most, but uh, are quite good. I would have no hesitation in using the AstraZeneca if it were available in Canada for my parents, even though the national guidelines suggest otherwise. Which brings me to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, too, uh, and, and that's these modeling uh, projects that are being done, uh, mathematical equations for all intents and purposes, uh, about where this is going to happen, how intense a wave is going to be, if there is going to be a second or third wave. Uh, and I, I, I understand where they're coming from, and I understand that they're very solid information, but do they take into account human factors? I mean, because I know, for instance, when they were predicting a, a, a catastrophic third wave here, it was going to be maybe worse than the first two. Uh, they based it based on the information that they got from the U.K., because there was a spike there. Uh but quite aside from the numbers there, Doctor, I mean, that was around Christmas time that the, the, that, that third wave started there. That's people traveling. That's people with mm. uh, eased restrictions going into restaurants and, and places where there's going to be a crowd, et cetera. Did, did these models take that sort of thing, the human behavior, into account? They try to, but, uh, I mean, models are really uncertain. You know, that a joke that economic models have predicted nine out of the last five uh, uh, recessions. <laughs> so, I mean, epidemiologists aren't any better. That um, you, It's very difficult to be able to predict what's going to happen because of all the variables that you mentioned and, and human behavior, the interaction with the virus, the changes in how people are crowding indoors, the use of masks, all of these but where I think models can help is to give some insight, really looking in the past and thinking what did work. And we know that uh, what certainly did work uh, in the summer was uh, trying to make sure that people move to using masks, trying to decrease indoor uh, crowding. Um, and um, so we have some insights but you can't rely on just models. You have to have real-world evidence, um, and that's something where you know, I think, quite frankly, Canada could have done a lot better. The UK, Israel, um, even Gibraltar or other places are doing really well by having a centralized scheme of getting the vaccine out and then monitoring the population. Like they go back and they ask people, we want to test your blood, see if the vaccine is working, we're going to report it very quickly, and that just gives people confidence that the vaccines are safe, they're effective, and uh, they might help uh, walk us out of this pandemic. And there you go. That's consumer confidence, and, and I mean in the information that we're getting. And this is something that I'm concerned about because as I hear from our listeners, well, I guess over the last year now since the first shutdown started, Doctor, uh, when some of these projections are, are, are deemed to be off-base, you know, I think they were talking about 5,000 people a day that were going to be going into hospital. This was during the first wave. Well, of course, that didn't happen here in Ontario, thankfully. But the, and, and this, and I'm, I'm looking at that as, okay, that's a good news story because it didn't happen. Others are saying, see, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Your numbers are just, you're throwing numbers out there. They're not happening. Why should I believe any of this stuff? And there's a credibility problem that can develop. Yeah. I think uh, that's fair enough, and um, people should be skeptical, but they should listen to the scientists. And if if the scientists are saying, hey, I would use this vaccine, I would use it in my elderly parents or in myself if they're elderly, uh, then I think that's quite credible. 
I think what we also need is really to have a lot more real data on what's happening. Now, in Canada and in Ontario in particular, we're really fortunate. We've got, uh, we've got a laboratory of 15 million Ontarians with a central OHIP number, and we could actually be following the whole of the population as to who gets vaccinated, what happens, do they get hospitalized, all of these things exactly what Israel was able to do. And what that does, it sounds uh, a bit nerdy for a data scientist like me to argue for more data, but I think what you said is right. It's a matter of public confidence. If you've got good reporting as to what's happening with the rollout of the vaccines in all of Ontario, then people have confidence saying, okay, I know this stuff is working. I can look at the numbers it's not just the government spinning the story. There's academics and NGOs and advocacy groups also looking at the numbers. So we need real data in a way that you know we should have organized uh, probably last year, but it's never too late. I would really like to see the whole of Ontario be uh, a global learning lab for what's happening with the pandemic. Uh, and that would also give us confidence that we're doing the right things. Well, that's one of the takeaways. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, you know, as, as we move towards that light at the end of the tunnel, I don't know how far away it is at this point, uh, but what have we learned from this? Because, I mean, SARS was a, a horrific experience in the province of Ontario some years ago, too, and I know reports were written at that time. There was a protocol developed in case this should ever happen again, and uh, it got put in somebody's bottom drawer, and everybody seemed to forget about it, and then, bingo, along comes COVID. Are, are we smarter now because of what's gone on? Well, I think, I mean, there was uh, David Naylor, the former president of the University of Toronto, wrote a very good report after SARS-1 mm-hmm. saying, how do you fix public health in Canada? And I would say 10% of what was recommended has been implemented, both federally and provincially. And so I think one of the lessons out of this is we have to build the public health systems, the monitoring systems. Um, Canada is really place to do well in this uh, because we, we do have things that that work but we just haven't done it and part of my concern is that politicians have been asking bureaucrats to make decisions on what should be done whereas what should be done is to get basically nerdy scientists to decide what should be done and if you look across the country and look at the covid response where it's led in the provinces by scientists, you have the strongest response, like out in the Maritimes or um, out in uh, BC, where mostly the scientists call the shots. That's been the strongest response. So there's a lot of learning here, but um, my sense is, and my fear is, Bill, that this isn't just going to go away in the summer. We'll have to figure out strategies to deal with this over the next two years or so. And in that case, we better build the data systems, we better build the confidence that uh, as vaccines are rolled out, we're monitoring what's happening in the population. And we have to convey that back to people in a way that they trust the data, they trust the numbers, and um, you, they never think that either government or scientists or others are talking down to them. You say, look, here's the numbers. This is what I believe. Look at it yourself, and you'll see that you know the vaccines are working, for example. Uh, so we have to do that. Otherwise, we'll get into this situation, which is unfortunate that if not enough people take up the vaccine or particularly vulnerable groups like our indigenous populations or our visible minorities don't take up the vaccines, 
then they're in a high-risk situation. That means not only will they get infected, the whole population is at risk. So we want to avoid that uh, negative cycle by investing in science in the right way. Well, and you touched on one of the pet peeves that I've been harping on for the last number of months now since this whole thing started. Uh, if you want credibility, uh, having a politician deliver the message is probably the worst thing you could do because we know that, you know, historically, we have less faith in politicians than just about any other profession. Nine times out of ten, they always have extra baggage and say, I don't believe this about them, so why should I believe what they're saying now? I would rather somebody like yourself or some of the other experts that have been doing this uh, deliver the message because you're the ones with the credibility. You're the ones with the expertise here. The politicians know nothing. I mean, somebody's writing down what they're supposed to say. And to your point about the Maritimes, uh, you'll notice on those daily briefings, it's not the premier that gets out in there in front of the cameras. It's the medical officers of health uh, that talk about that. And, and there, there's a credibility issue here. And I think you've, you're bang on, doctor, that we, we need to learn from that, too. It's, it's a small point, but I think it's a very important point to, to, to engender that sort of confidence that we need. Yeah. Well, my dad is a retired politician from Manitoba, and he said it was the most thankless job that he ever had. He's got to be nice to everyone. So I, I have sympathy for politicians because they have, really do have a, a, a job where they can almost generate no winners. But I think in terms of getting the, the politicians' purpose of getting the population um, happy is served if you get scientists to organize the response and convey it. And you hold the scientists accountable. You hold them for uh, what advice they give and how they follow up. So, uh, but we we're, we have to think about a two-year strategy for exactly. really being able to walk out of this pandemic. And I think that would mean a lot more science, a lot more data, and probably less modeling, but a lot more of the other stuff. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Great to get your perspective on this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Prabhjot Jha, of course, from the University of Toronto and St. Michael's Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus in for a couple of minutes on vaccines. Uh, of course, the uh, rollout for the uh, the area vaccine programs started, well, yesterday. For the, uh, the phones crashed over the weekend. Uh, this is for the 85-plus, but there's still a number of people that went in there. And uh, I know there's an awful lot of frustrations. We heard from many, many people uh, over the last couple of days saying, you know, we, it, I was on the phone for hours trying to get through. The plus side, by the way, they said when they finally got through, the staff were fabulous about this and, and did everything they possibly could to arrange that. But there's still many questions about this. Every time we bring up the topic of vaccines, invariably I get an awful lot of questions about, well, one shot, two shot, are we going to need boosters every year, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, let's try to address some of those things. Uh, and maybe to start it off, I want to pull a clip from a show yesterday. Uh, CHML's Rick Zamper talked with Dr. Derek Rossi. Now, Dr. Rossi is the Moderna co-founder. And uh, during that conversation, he actually tried to explain the difference between the one-shot and two-shot vaccine. Even though some are given as two-shot uh, uh, vaccines and others now one-shot, actually, those that are giving two-shot are essentially giving already giving a booster, which is uh, essentially what the second shot is. Um, if you actually look at the data from the first shot for even Pfizer and BioNTech, there's very clear that um, uh, protection arises even from the first shot. It doesn't require the second shot, but that certainly the second shot really, really primes the uh, the immune system 
in a good way. The same would be true of those that were given in just one shot. If you were to give that as a, as, as a two-shot regimen, you'd get a, a booster effect and, and you'd probably have a more robust response. It really is just how the clinical trials were designed. Well, let's see if uh, we can make some sense out of that. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Amit Aria, who's the co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care and Palliative Care Research. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill, for having me on the show. One shot or two shot, that seems to be the debate that goes on and on. And and is is it hinging, Doctor, on the efficacy of that first shot? Yeah, I mean, I think it's controversial, and I, I will say to you, Bill, I'm not an expert on, like, you know, immu- on immunology or, like, you know, virology, and really what we're looking for at this point is sort of more data. Uh, I will say that, um, as far as I've heard, we're on the verge of approving the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. I believe Health Canada is having a look at that vaccine, and that is a single-dose COVID vaccine, which uh, hopefully will, um, you know, help us with a faster rollout. All right. What I do want to ask you about, though, because I know that your specialty in palliative care uh, rolls right in uh, to the concern that was raised yesterday about the efficacy of one of the vaccines for people over 65. In some people's minds, doctor, the announcement yesterday actually raised an awful lot of red flags. Like, hey, are we doing the right thing here? And lay our concerns or or maybe explain exactly what the concern is. Yeah, so specifically, um, you know, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations uh, recommended for the AstraZeneca vaccine not to be given to people over 65. And you're right, that's the, you know, the majority of the patients that I see are over 65, of course. And um, there was no concerns about the safety of the vaccine. But, um, you know, there's suggested superior efficacy for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine in, in older adults. And I can explain the reason for this briefly is Please. that... Um, you know, in older adults, I mean, you know, often they don't have the same, uh, you know, immune system. Their immune system may be a little bit compromised. And that's what we need to generate an immune response and for the vaccine to be as effective. So when we have these two vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna ones that have been shown to be uh, around 95, you know, around 95 percent effective, even in older adults, then why not just use those? Right. With the mRNA technology and the AstraZeneca vaccine will likely be reserved for younger populations. Okay, but in some cases, especially in these early days of the rollout, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine may be the only one available in a a specific area. Do do you forego the vaccination of those plus 65s and wait for the other ones? Well, I I mean, I think it would be better that we go with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And from what I'm hearing, actually, is that we should have enough now, right? Like, you know, what I'm seeing from, you know, like reading the stats from the federal government and also uh, looking at our provincial government's, you know, statistics, uh, I I think that with the availability of the AstraZeneca vaccine, it will kind of clear the way for millions of inoculations. And, you know, a reminder, we actually got, as far as I'm aware, a record, uh, you know, delivery of vaccinations uh, last week for Pfizer and Moderna. So from what I'm seeing, uh, procurement of the vaccine should not be a major issue moving ahead, which is all good news. Very good news. I, I know we're kind of getting into the idea about the, uh, the the trials that went on and everything else before these things finally got their approvals. But uh, to my knowledge, doctor, and, and I know you've done a lot more research on this than I have, uh, were there any indications at all that, that, that this, va- this vaccine might have been less effective to the, uh, the plus 65s during any of those trials? 
Yeah, so with the trials, uh, as far as I'm aware, um, you know, AstraZeneca, first of all, it's a technology issue with the mRNA sort of technology, whereas the AstraZeneca goes based on the old technology, similar to the one used for influenza. It's absolutely safe, but we know from, for example, influenza and other sort of viral immunizations that they just don't work as well in older people. We have that experience. And the trials have really shown that, once again, older people don't generate the same immune response. So they're just trying to give people the best vaccination, which is suited for their health condition and their age, which we know is a big risk factor for COVID-19. A lot of people use the analogy of this vaccination as, as a shield uh, against, uh, well, the virus or the, the variant viruses that are going on right now. So is, is the concern about the long-term effect or lack of, of, of effectors as to how long this could go on, or is it the initial dosage? Because and, and, uh, there always is going to be a concern about whether or not these people are still going to contract the virus anyway. Yeah, I mean, we know that, um, you know, with respect to comparing these vaccines, uh, other than what we've talked about, Bill, where we're saying that, well, you know, older adults uh, should probably get the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, um, you know, for for pretty much everyone else, it's important that we just kind of, you know, take what's given to us, to be honest. The Bex vaccine for us is the one that we get. And all of the vaccines I wanted to emphasize show uh, significant and almost, uh, you know, huge reduction in hospitalizations and almost a hundred percent reduction in death, which are the outcomes that we all care about, right? We don't want to mm-hmm. end up with severe COVID in hospital and we don't want to die from COVID. Well, and that's, I suppose, if we want to look at some of the critiques about this, and I tried to read over the stuff that was available in the media last night about these concerns. Uh, right. They say that it still would prevent hospitalizations. I mean, you may still get the virus. You may still feel miserable for a while, but you're probably not going to need hospitalization. And so there's, I guess, if that's a silver lining, there's there's something to that, which I guess indicates that, you know, it's it's not the worst possible thing. And I guess what we need to do also is look at, for instance, the UK, where they've already had this rollout before and they've used it on plus 65s and i don't think there have been too many or any uh, particular situations where people have said wait a second i don't think it's working yeah i mean i i, I mean i see what you're saying bill and i think uh, i haven't looked specifically at, at the astrazeneca data the real world data that's come out in the uk and i mean that may be the case right that certain public health uh, units and certain provinces make a decision of giving the AstraZeneca, you know, vaccine to older adults uh, based on availability. But as I said, from what I'm seeing right now, uh, heading into, the, you know, this sort of next phase, the good news is, is that supply of these vaccines should become less and less of an issue from my understanding. Yeah, I've seen that too, that uh, with yeah. the, the numbers that are flowing right now, and I know we went through a bump, but it was problematic for an awful lot of people. Uh, yeah. But actually, just a, a poll that was released yesterday morning indicated that the majority of Canadians now think that we're back on track. I, I hope we're right, uh, that it's going to be available to it, uh, to everybody who wants in a situation like this. But for those that are, are very concerned about this, I, I, I saw some speculative uh interviews about this this morning on a couple of the morning shows that say well maybe we should hold off on the plus 65s until we get our hands on one of those other vaccines but uh, for what you're saying and and from what the politicians are telling us the federal and provincial governments are telling us uh, that's not going to be a problem because uh, for instance the Pfizer vaccine is going to be available for plus 65s so this is really not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, That's what I'm sort of seeing. And, uh, you know, a reminder to everyone listening as well. I mean, I don't think we should hold off in any circumstance because it's 
I mean, people who are over 60 uh, account for 96% of Ontario's COVID-19 deaths. And this is the population which by far um, leads, um, you know, hospitalizations, leads ICU admissions and leads deaths from COVID-19. And although um, long-term care vaccinations um, in terms of the first dose are pretty much completed now, thankfully, and the pandemic is coming to an end there, um, we still have many, many people who are extremely vulnerable who live in the community, uh, once again, older adults people with disabilities, um, you know, also essential workers, um, you know, that all, you know, need to get vaccinated quickly. The other, I suppose, good news in this, if we could classify it as that, is that there are other jurisdictions. We mentioned the UK, but Israel comes to mind and some others that that are are further down the road than we are when it comes to vaccinations. And I mean, there's certain age demographics. and, and so we can learn from them, okay, you know, how did it work in that particular age group? I know that an awful lot of people are concerned about getting children vaccinated, and, and they were never part of those trials that were done for these. Uh, but I would assume that that, that, that sort of work is go- ongoing right now to try to determine that, uh, because as you and I have talked about, uh, even kids that are in elementary school may well live in intergenerational, multi-generational homes where there are elderly people and could be people that uh, that it could be impacted negatively if the virus were to come into the household. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just to add to that, Bill, um, you're absolutely right. But some of the data that has come out from the, um, you know, from the science table, the science advisory table, really shows us that we should be ideally prioritizing um, our older adults, which is going to save lives and sort of flatten the curve and protect our ICUs and hospitals and so on. But also it's important that we um, sort of um, prioritize people based on postal code and neighborhoods uh, where they work in, because there are certain high-risk neighborhoods where, once again, as you mentioned, they're more likely to be low-income essential workers. And these are people that, you know, can't follow the stay-at-home orders. We've been hearing that we just have to stay at home, but not everybody can do that, as we know. Um, these are people that, you know, make sure that we have groceries uh, in our stores and in other essential goods, uh, people that are making sure our Amazon or other sort of online deliveries are outside our home, people that are working in healthcare, for example, PSWs and so on. And they're, you know, once again, more likely to be lower income and racialized, uh, they're you know, unfortunately may not have the same protections with in terms of PPE or paid sick leave. So it's important that we, you know, uh, also like we target uh, people based on age, but also postal code, because it would minimize the uh, impact of COVID-19 quicker and flatten the curve more quickly to protect our hospitals. Well, have you heard any information? I'm assuming it's too early to actually have data on this, but at least anecdotally uh, about the effectiveness of of this rollout program in those long-term care facilities, because you've on some of the key issues here and it's not just the residents it's also the staff in those facilities and and we know that some people are going to work even though they're feeling ill and may actually have symptoms because in some cases if they don't go to work they don't get paid Uh, and because they're low income they're in circumstances so the immunization program is essential for them isn't it Oh, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the staff working in long-term care homes have really sacrificed so much to look after, you know, seniors who, who live there. And this is a population that through the pandemic, I mean, I can tell you from my own frontline experiences, as well as through my work in the Ontario Health Coalition, I mean, people weren't even getting proper PPE as late as December and January. I was speaking to people and they didn't know where N95 masks were. They weren't getting gowns and gloves. And it was just abhorrent. And, you know, they're feeling sacrificed and vulnerable. And 50%, over 50% of the frontline health workers, when we talk about PSWs, who perform perhaps the most uh, important work, are part-time casual. 
even at this point during the pandemic, which means that they don't get paid sick leave. So if they get, uh, you know, a vaccine and need a day or two off where they're getting a headache or a sore arm, I mean, they might not get that day or two off and that might lead to hesitancy. Many of them are, are racialized women, immigrants to Canada, where English might not be their first language. So, uh, and, and they've been exploited through the pandemic. Um, so it's very important that we have proper messaging led by frontline health workers and unions uh, to promote positive messaging, accurate sort of science based messaging to ensure vaccine uptake. And I'll just add that to give an example, only 55% of Ontario's nursing home workers have received the vaccine so far, which is not enough um, by any means. And in British Columbia, where some of these issues just don't exist or are much better, it's um, uh, like over 80%. Well, I had occasion to run into somebody yesterday, actually I was over at Shoppers getting a prescription filled and uh, they were social distancing but we talked and she's in that profession and she says you you don't know the half of it and i said well you know we've talked about this on our show we've talked about some of the shortcomings and and the policies and the paid sick days and she says it's the tip of the iceberg she's the stuff that you see on a daily basis or that she sees on a daily basis is horrific and it's it's the the level of care it's the the facilities themselves it's it's a, a very very problematic situation and i know we're kind of getting off into this but i i they're all interrelated when we come into what's going on in long-term care facilities and i find it so frustrating i know the inquiry's going on right now and we're getting some information about this uh but i'm sure you hear the same thing i do that the staff themselves doctor are still very very frustrated because in their mind as she told me yesterday uh lots of talk no action yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's the case. And, you know, from, you know, the transcripts from the Minister of Long-Term Care, the Minister of Health and the Chief Medical Officer of Health, unfortunately, uh, I, I, I don't see a lot of honesty and transparency. I see a lot of deflecting and excuses. And that's in a situation where close to 4,000 people have died of COVID-19 in long-term care. And many people died from dehydration and hunger, neglect and abandonment. Um, so, I mean, at the least, uh, I, I think everybody wants accountability at this point. But unfortunately, I'm not sure that we will we will ever get that and uh, you know it's a reminder to everyone that although it seems thankfully the COVID-19 crisis is finally ending in long-term care facilities with the end of the second wave and vaccines um, you know the work is not done we still need to make sure we have enough trained staff on site we improve working conditions we uh, legislate the rights of family caregivers and we start the process to end for-profit long-term care because we just know that you know the people we love and cherish who built our society are seniors they deserve much more than just a shot in the arm. Yeah, I, listen, you're singing to the choir here, but the problem is, is there seem to be a, a few people that are turning a deaf ear to this at Queen's Park, and that's that seems to be the, the linchpin right now for trying to get any of the stuff done. Uh, and especially frustrating because we've seen there has been some progress in other jurisdictions where they do understand that there are problems and there are solutions. That's that's why I find it so frustrating to, to listen to what's going on at Queen's Park and to listen to the uh, the commission and the inquiries. Uh, how much more time do we have to talk about analyzing the problems? We already know what the problems are. Why don't we just move on them? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Bill. I mean, there have been hundreds of studies sort of looking at long-term care and what needs to be done, uh, you know, before the pandemic. I mean, I, I can look at, you know, sort of the commission's own work, which has been excellent so far. And um, on October 23rd, they released their first interim report, which was essentially focused on staffing. And I remember one line of it, which is important for all of us to realize, where they said, further study of the study is not needed. What is needed is its timely implementation. And that really hasn't happened. You know, we don't need more research. We know the solutions and we know what needs to happen. We just need the political will. And that should obviously come with funding and a timeline. 
Well, I guess one of the more disturbing stories, and I talked about this in my commentary at 10 this morning, uh, was the fact that uh, the minister in charge of this portfolio uh, apparently uh, did raise some of these issues, according to her notes anyway, uh, behind closed doors, and basically was ignored or overruled uh, when it came to doing the proper things that had to be done to try to curb the spread in long-term care facilities, which only magnifies the problem here because that means that somebody around that table uh, didn't think it was that important, and, and that, that's, that's pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The Minister of Long-Term Care in her testimony to the Commission kind of said that in February she knew that COVID-19, or she was very, you know, suspicious that COVID-19 could spread, um, you know, asymptomatically, but yet the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, was really realizing this in the summer. And um, that makes no sense to me because there was data uh, from Seattle. Uh, you might we, we might remember early in the pandemic that Seattle was hard hit and their nursing homes particularly were hard hit with COVID-19. And there was data showing that they had asymptomatic spread of COVID-19. But I mean, all in all, this just doesn't make sense to me, especially when we had the entire summer to take action. It's very clear that everyone kind of knew about this virus, um, you know, by August, for example, or July of last year. But yet, why did we have a second wave, which was worse than the first wave uh, with COVID-19 in long term care? Why did they not take action when so many lives were at stake? Exactly. Uh, we got to leave it there for now, but uh, certainly not the end of this conversation. Always a pleasure, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amit Ari, of course, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, and of course, especially in palliative care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about the end of the pandemic and the end of the protocols that we've been using here and we've had a number of economists on the program over the last little while saying you know are we going to be able to rebound uh, how are we going to act once once this veil has been lifted from us what about the social impacts of this on on you me as individuals um, we're wearing masks we're doing the social distancing and the self-isolation in some cases are we going to be able to bounce back well at least one expert says yeah it's probably going to happen and uh, we're going to talk about that in greater detail in just a couple of seconds uh, because and, and explain stuff like how how we're coping with this and how unnatural it seems to be. And we've, we've had this discussion anecdotally, you and I, for the last number of months, uh, how unnatural it seems for us to be social distancing and, and to doing the sorts of things that we're doing to try to stop the spread. And uh, whether or not that's going to become our, our learned behavior or whether we're just going to abandon that. I want to bring uh, Steve Jordans into the conversation. Steve is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, great to be with you. All right. I, I'm, I'll tell you right up front, I've been talking about this on the show for a year now, ever since the first lockdown. I've been working at home for the last 12 months. Uh, I don't like social distancing. I know why I have to do it, but I'm a social being. I like being around people. I like talking to people. Uh, like one of my buddies told me when this whole thing started, he says, I'm a hugger. This is driving me nuts. And this has been going on. Uh, when we get unshackled from this stuff, how are we going to respond? Yeah, you know, I, I wondered that right from the beginning as well. I kind of saw two powerful forces at play. You know, one is exactly what you described. We are the most social species on the planet. We need others right from the moment of birth. And for some of us, we need those others till we're like about 30 and ready to go out on our own. Um, and, and so, you know, that's just who we are at our core. At the same time, 
we have these special learning systems for, for uh, things that make us sick or things that are dangerous to us that allow us to learn new ways of being in a very short time. Um, all of us have experienced that eating something and getting sick and then almost instantly hating that thing, what we call yep. single shot learning. Uh, and so I wondered how these two things would play out. You know, would disgust of fellow human beings win out over our natural need uh, for social contact? Then I so, saw the American Travelers at Thanksgiving, and yeah. uh, my, my views changed. How so? Sorry. What did, what I, did I you see? How did it change? Yeah, well, okay. Just, you know, what was fascinating was, A, the, the bulk of them, when they showed all these people in, in the airports. And it was like, wow. Uh, and then secondly, but when they interviewed them, these people would clearly rationally say, I understand the risk. I understand what's potentially, you know, I could be bringing this virus to my loved ones and all that. But they would almost immediately say, but... I need to see them. I haven't seen them for a long time. It's what, and they're just expressing, you know, I understand, but my emotional needs right now are more powerful than that logical basis. And I think that is what's going to win. When we feel safe, our emotional needs, our basic instincts are going to win out again, and we will be together there, of course. On a grander scale, though, Professor, is that a battle that's going on within us all the time? Our, our emotional desires or needs as opposed to the, the, the pragmatic side? Because yeah, they, can, they can't be in conflict sometimes, us, can't they? Yeah, and, and what most of us don't realize is that emotion wins. You know, when, when it comes down to it, we, that's the most powerful, that's the most primitive part of us, the, the parts of our brain, the limbic system that underlies that are, are present in virtually every animal species. And our frontal lobes, which is the part that tries to harness that emotionality, it's the new kid on the block, and it's, and it's fragile. It can get knocked off um, quite easily, and emotion can just sort of take over. And in fact, you know, that's what a lot of us are experiencing in COVID is that feeling of fear that comes from the unknown and the danger. And that's making our emotional, our fight or flee system kind of constantly be there. And, and we are now more emotional, less rational versions of ourselves. Is that why the message is getting lost in some circles? Uh, because the, the quote unquote experts that are giving us this message are not appealing to the frontal lobe, to the emotional side. They're trying to appeal to the pragmatic side. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, you know, when humans are trying to convince each other of something, our natural tendency is to try to use logic and facts and data and appeal to those frontal lobes and say, you know, this is why it makes sense to do X. Um, but in fact, the more powerful way to message is, is to get at the more emotional sides of the brain. And we would do that by, and, and I haven't seen a lot of this during COVID, it's surprising, but we should be hearing the stories of those people, those human beings who made seemingly innocent decisions that led to very tragic results. And you know, we need to hear them tell those stories in their own words so that we can feel their pain uh, and that we can think about that when we're in a position of making one of these seemingly innocent decisions. That memory, that ability to make concrete the risk that's actually there uh, is a more, in my opinion, it would be a more powerful way to at least augment all of these numbers and data we're getting and that we're just becoming numbed. So I, I think, you know, I've been arguing for a while, it's time we start talking to the emotional sides of the brain and not just the rational side. If we had done that from the beginning, would it have been easier for us to handle this pandemic? Would we be a, we as a, as a society been more compliant? I think so. You know, I, I think when I, when I talk about this messaging, I always think about the time and the times when the virus is on the rise. You, I think that's when we really should have been, like right from the get-go, we should have been making clear, and, and this is this distinction that's important to highlight, it's not fear-mongering, it's not making people scared, 
It's making them respect a real and present danger at an emotional level to really understand that. And the problem with COVID is that often the negative consequences happen down the road and away from us. And we're not seeing the consequences and we're not feeling the emotionality, you know, unless it's your family directly impacted, you're not feeling that emotionality. And so bringing that to people and just showing them the reality You know, it's kind of like there's a bear there and a bunch of people are thinking, oh, this bear is not dangerous. And they're going around and poking it and rolling around. And, you know, (laughs) we need to understand the bear is dangerous. And I think the messaging needs to align with that. You, uh, as I read some of the literature on this, you call this the great snapback, uh, that, uh, that we are ready, yeah. willing, and able uh, to get back to the way things were. I know we've talked, from, as I mentioned in, the, in my preamble, we've talked to economists about, you know, are we going to have consumer confidence? Are we going to start buying things? Are we going to start going to restaurants again? Are we going to start going to ball games and movie theaters? Uh, we're dying to do it right now, aren't we? Yeah, and, and really we've been living in a state of, you know, that's our natural way of being. And, and we've had habits built up of decades and, and in fact, you know, evolutionarily even to pushing us that way. And we've been inhibiting this for a year. And, and that, this is why I kind of use the term snapback, because it's not like that desire has ever gone away. We all badly, badly want to be out there and just having a, you know, a drink with our friends in somewhere. And uh, for me, having my band get together and practice. Uh, and so I think the moment we can stop inhibiting, you know, the moment we really feel, okay, everything's cool, everything's safe, we're going to go running back to that. And, and so I use the word snapback because I think it could almost be that quick. But of course, that's the danger as well, is that we snap back too soon. Uh, and I think we've seen this, you know, a couple of times where as soon as it starts to feel better, we're even kind of there now, I feel like. You know, the numbers have sort of dropped down in Ontario. There are about a thousand new ones a day. That's still a lot. Yeah. Um, but we start to feel it kind of drift down. Okay, it was 1,300. Now it's 1,000. And, we, and we're already talking easing restrictions and doing all this stuff because I think we're so eager to snap back. But, man, I really hope we don't you know, third wave ourselves because I'm not sure we're able to, to psychologically deal with this yet again. Yeah. Somebody drew the analogy. It's kind of like when you get a couple of mild days in March, and all of a sudden you say, "Okay, I can I can put the park away now. It's springtime," and then you get one of those March wicked storms, and you figure, "Oh, gee!" And it's it's actually depressing when you fall back into the hole, isn't it? It is. When we when we did the second wave, you know, I, I was saying to people intellectually, we've known that this could happen, and and that in fact it might happen. But when it actually happens, it is a real sucker punch. You know, that's when we feel the emotionality, and and that's the problem. We can sort of forget what that was like. Um, and, and then go head rushing back in and once again, you know, get sucker punched again by this feeling like, oh my goodness, what's it going to be another six months that, that we're going to, you know, be stuck down here. And, and so, uh, that's the trick. I, I would love to see the emotional messaging come out now just to kind of help us do that extra two or three months of, of good behavior that we'll ultimately need to have the summer that we all dream of. Um, I, I think. This might be a good time. We just have to make sure people don't start, you know, saying fear mongering and then reacting in a in a in a very oppositional way, as we see in some countries with the demonstrations and such that are just so counterproductive to everything we're doing. Dealing with the human psyche, though, because we're basically being told, and in some cases, some people might suggest even forced uh, to do things that are counter to our nature. Uh, at what point do we build up a resentment to the people that are telling us this? Yeah, and and that is you know that is the line I think every politician and every rule maker has has been 
sort of walking because, yeah, we are not a, a, a kind of country, a kind of people that like being told explicitly what to do. Uh, and as you said, you know, it's going right, right against your nature. Do not get together with your family and, and enjoy your family. You know, that is so core to us. And so it is very tricky. And I think that's why there's been so much of the rational, you know, people are trying to say, this is why, this is why they're trying to justify um, you know, versus, say, in China, where you have a more dictatorial system where they just say, you will stay home or you will go to jail. <laughs> you know, none of us like that sort of approach. Uh, and none of our politicians want to want to have that sort of approach. Um, but that's that's the trick is that fight back kind of spirit. And, and, you know, can we have enough humans on board? Because if you start losing critical mass in terms of people listening to your message, um, then, then you just lose it because we all... We're all very prone to, to what's called observational learning. When we start seeing those around us behaving, let's say, in, in more cavalier ways, if they're starting to not wear masks where they should or whatnot, it's very easy for us to, to sneak back to those habits uh, and to follow along. And so we need a certain level of conformity and how to keep that level of conformity and trust high when you have to keep telling people to do things they don't want to do. Uh, it's a very, very tricky business. Well, and we're seeing examples of that, aren't we? Especially, I... I always hate to draw the comparison to us in the United States, but I mean, that's the most obvious one because it's right there in front of us all the time. You just turn on the television or anywhere else and you'll see all these things going on. Uh, and you'll see them at the beaches and you figure, okay, that's not yep. supposed to happen, but they're doing it and they're not all dying. Uh, they're going to football games. They're, they're not filling the stadiums, but they're going to football games. Uh, you know, they're going to other yep. events. They're, they're letting people into golf tournaments now. And then, isn't there a little voice in the back of our head that says, why can't we do that? Yeah, and, and, and exactly, 100%. It's like watching people do what we so badly want to do, mixed with that, that silent next step. Like if, if, if only that football game were followed, or preferably if you could immediately say, you know, as a result of these 20,000 people being at this game, the prediction is that, you know, 800 people will die. Um, they will die three weeks from now. But that's the problem is that, you know, that probably is true. There are people dying because of what those people are doing, but it happens so far down the line and so far out of our sight that it looks like nothing bad is happening. It looks like everything's fine. Look, they're all there. They did okay. They went to the football game, blah, blah, blah. And, and you really don't see those. And, and that's where those human stories, you know, when we can have that person who went to the football game say, hey, listen, it didn't seem like a big deal. I really wanted to go. And now my father died alone. Um, you know, that, that's kind of a short version of a longer commercial. But, but that story, and, and in fact, you know, I, when I've argued for it, I've even argued for that tagline, which I think we don't all think about enough, which is, and they died alone. Um, you know, when I think of my family or when I think of the people I love, yes, I hate the idea of them being sick from COVID, but I'm terrified of the idea that somebody I love could die all alone you know, that's we're, we're social creatures. And at the time of our death, we want to be surrounded or at least have some people around us that we know love us and that make us feel a little OK as we're going, you know, who knows where. And, um, yeah, the fact that people are dying alone, I don't think we think about enough how horrible that is to our fellow human beings and how much we should be trying to make sure that happens to as few people as possible.
Well, and then as a result, we turn to rationalize it in our own heads, don't we, Professor? You know, well, yeah, but those people were all, like, they were 85 years old. I mean, I'm only 40. I, well, you know, I can do this. So, so we dip our toe in the water a little bit, you know. Maybe, maybe we don't go and, and, you know, to a football game, but, you know, we do, we do things we're really not supposed to do, figuring, you know what, I, I gotta take a chance on this. Because that's, that's what's driving, I guess, from within. Yeah. I mean, that's that balance that I, that I talk, you know, when we're being gracious about that, we can sometimes be very judgmental, <laughs> which um, there's a place for. We also want to have some sort of understanding. Uh, and so in, in, a lot of us, you know, there's the physical threat that's out there. And then there's the mental health threat. And, you know, sometimes I think what people are actually saying here is, you know, I, I know it's dangerous maybe to somebody's physical health if I do this, including maybe mine. Um, but my mental health isn't such a point that I, that I really feel like I need this. And there's, you know, those are tricky situations because you really want the rules to be followed uniformly. I have even argued for things like, you know, if kids are outside in the winter with masks on, maybe we can get a little um, less worried about social distancing if they're masked and outdoors, then then those two things should be very big factors. And, and our children, you know, do need to see their friends. They do need physical activity. Um, but those are the lines where people are starting to say, well, what's the physical the health threat and what's the mental health? And the thing is, the mental health pressures we feel, you know, that's for us. I need this. And so that's immediate and it's emotional. The physical health dangers are neither immediate nor emotionally felt. Uh, and so that's why so many people, I think, are putting their own mental health uh, in front of the physical health of our community. And, you know, that's, again, why I think we need to bring in that emotional part of the physical danger, too. It's just with a virus, it's so we're just not seeing it. If we, if we knew if we could walk around infecting people and seeing who we were killing, you know, the moment we were doing it, it would be very different than when you can walk around and, and just have no idea that you're causing any uh, problems at all. And, and there are a lot of non-symptomatic people who are walking around transmitting the virus with no idea that they're that they're transmitting death and, and disease to others. The great snapback. Uh, we can hardly wait for it after COVID. We all want to be part of it, too. Oh. Uh, Professor Steve Jordan, yeah. as always, thank you so much. A great article, very thought-provoking. I appreciate the time today. Thank you. Great to be with you today. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.